Go ahead and please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, please. For those of you uh, joining us today, we're continuing a series uh, surveying the first five books of the Old Testament, and we have started with Genesis a few weeks ago, and we're going to look at chapters 6 through 9 today, Genesis 6 through 9, uh, whose theme is the God who punishes and renews the God who punishes and renews. In these chapters, in these three chapters, we're going to read about how God judged the entire world for its sin through what's often called as the universal flood and yet kept one family, the family of Noah, alive with a limited number of animals and birds in order to survive the flood and to renew the post-flood world. Now some of you may be wondering, how is this message in keeping with the Christmas season? By the time I complete this sermon, I hope you will see how this passage is very much connected with the reason Jesus came into this world. But before we look at the text, let's uh, look at the God of the text and uh, uh, plead with him to open our eyes to see the truths he has in store for us. Father, we pray that uh, unless your spirit opens our eyes, uh, all of this would be meaningless. So I pray that your spirit will uh, work in our hearts to see the glory of Christ in these passages. In his name we pray. Amen. You know, the last part of Genesis 5, which we saw last week, introduced Noah, the main human character in uh, Genesis 6 through 9. And we saw how the chapter, uh, Genesis 5, ends with um, Noah being 500 years old when he became the father of uh, three, three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the story continues in chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 3 that set the stage for God's judgment. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal Their days will be 120 years. This is a complex passage. I don't have time to unpack all the details. That that particular phrase there, sons of God, there's a variety of opinions. I want to quickly mention three and the one that I slightly lean toward. Number one, sons of God refers to fallen angels who followed Satan in his rebellion. They came in human form to corrupt the human race. And by having sexual relations with women, bring about mixed breed, perverted breed of uh, uh, human beings, mixed with demonic uh, nature there. Second, sons of God refers to the men from the godly line of Seth. By marrying women from the ungodly line of uh, uh, Cain, it was a mixed breed. So, sons of God refers to Seth's sons. That's the second opinion. third opinion is, Sons of God refer to the sons of Cain, the ungodly line, marrying in the daughters of Seth's descendants. These were specifically descendants of Cain who were powerful rulers. So that's just the three of the many opinions uh, that are out there. Each have their own strengths and weaknesses when you uh, explore deeper. But I lean towards the idea that the sons of God are a reference to fallen angels. Few reasons. Reason number one, sons of God in the Old Testament is often used as a reference to angels, both good and bad. Here in context, a bad uh, fallen angels, demons. Also that phrase, sons of God, seems to be in stark contrast with the daughters of humans. So there's two things that seem to be appearing in contrast. Uh, Satan uh, trying to corrupt the human race to prevent the Redeemer from coming because the Redeemer would come only to redeem mankind, not a mixed breed. Uh, whichever position one takes, again, I'm not uh, uh, good people or on all sides of the argument, so I'm not dogmatic, but I lean heavily on that side myself. But one thing that is clear is this. There was some kind of intermarriages going on that was extremely sinful in the sight of God. That much we know. Because look at verse 3. Then the Lord said. So what happened in verse 2, 
trigger God to say what he said in verse 3. My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. There was this unholy marriages that upsets God. As a side note, it's, isn't it clear from early in the Bible, God wants holy marriages, not unholy ones. Believers cannot marry unbelievers. It is detestable in God's sight. Those of you who are not married, hear me well, because this is the word of God. It's different if you are married and then you become a believer. Then you stay. That's different. But if you're single, professing to be a born-again, baptized believer, God defines what holy marriages are. So keep that in mind. So God sets a limit here, 120 years. Some think 120 years is the limit he set on age, that humans cannot live more than 120 years forever. I don't lean towards that because the very same Noah lives longer than that. Abraham, after the flood, lived longer. Jacob lived longer. Here the idea I think is God was establishing a deadline. I'm bringing a judgment. 120 years. If people don't repent, they're going to be destroyed. And then Moses goes on to write about there were these giant people, these giants called Nephilim who lived before and after the flood. They're not the product of these Unholy marriages, because verse 4 makes that clear. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. And then comes one of the saddest, if not the saddest commentary in all of the Bible about the condition of the human heart and the Lord's response to it. Look first of all at verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God knows the thoughts of our heart. He's omniscient. Contrast with what the Lord saw here, with what he saw in chapter 1, verse 31. The Lord saw everything was what? Very good. And now what he sees is only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. Here's the graphic description of the condition of the human heart. Totally depraved. Sin had so corrupted the human race that it was all pervasive. Every inclination, every motive, every plan of the human heart in its natural state is bent toward wickedness. Its focus is only evil all the time. How true are the words of the Apostle Paul? There is none who does good, none who seeks after God, no, not one, left to themselves. Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. God is now moved to act as he sees sin pervading, as one writer put it, as it pervading every pore of the human being, totally infecting us. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Now when, when the Bible says the Lord regretted or some of the older translations have it as the Lord repented, it does not mean that God realized he made a mistake and now he's like, oops, I got to do something. That's not what this refers to. It, God's regret means God now is forced to take action. He's forced to take action. And this is the action, verse 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. He is so grieved what he saw in the heart of man that he wanted to destroy, uncreate what he created, according to Genesis 1 and 2. Shows how much a holy God hates sin. One theologian puts it this way. The fact that God's motives remain good when the human races have become so impure highlights sin's inappropriateness and God's correctness in doing something about it. A holy God has to respond to the rebellion of those whom he had created. But imagine for a moment, 
if God had destroyed all of humanity, which he had every right to do. But imagine if he had just done that. What would have happened? I tell you what would have happened. It would have made God look like a liar who cannot keep his promises. What do I mean? Remember in Genesis 3.15, God promised Eve that he would bring from her a chosen one, one who would crush Satan's head. So he could not destroy all humanity, even though everyone deserved death. So a promise-keeping God who cannot lie in the midst of great judgment offers us a glimpse of hope through the means of one man. Don't despise the day of small things. One man, Noah, a descendant of Seth who was born to Adam and Eve. Through that one man, God was going to renew the world. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. For the first time in the Bible, that word favor or grace appears. Noah did not earn God's favor. It was granted to him. He found favor. Salvation is always the result of God's grace, isn't it? Right from Genesis on, the theme runs throughout the scriptures. Salvation is by God's grace, not human works. As a result of God's grace in his life, on the inside, Noah also displayed an outside evidence, a life of righteousness, as we will see shortly. Noah and his family now would become the means through which God would continue the human race and bring about his promise of bringing a redeemer to fruition. But Noah also would be a visible illustration through which a just, good, and merciful God would show how he distinguishes, how he separates the faithful and the disobedient from the faithful and the obedient. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Earlier in Genesis 5.24, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Now we read about Noah walking faithfully with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In the midst of a corrupt world, it is possible to walk faithfully with God. Even if your family doesn't seek after God, even if your spouse doesn't seek after God, even if your neighbors don't seek after God, even if your own friends don't seek after God, you and I can seek after God and walk faithfully. Noah stands as a powerful illustration of that one man when the whole world was corrupt. And as God prepared to destroy the world, he gave instructions to Noah as to how he would preserve Noah and his family. Look with me at verses 11 through 14. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Three times that word corrupt occurs in these two verses. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And then verses 15 through 16, God gave instructions related to the dimensions of the ark. Ark is basically a box-like structure. Look first of all in verse 15. You have some pictures here that give you an idea. Verse 15 reads, this is how you are to build the ark. It's to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Translating this into contemporary units of measurement, it's 450 feet long, 75 feet in width, and 45 feet in height. When you read that word cubit in the Bible, the unit of measure is, if you lift your hand, take the measure from the top of your finger to your elbow. It's about 18 inches. That's what a cubit is. So when you do the calculation, this is how it is. It's like a one and a half times the size of a football field. You can see the arc. Then there's a side view there that shows the width, 75 feet. So that's, you can see a, a semi there. That gives you a little idea. And then in verse 16, God talks about Further instructions, make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit or 18 inches high. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. So you see these are the three levels. And someone this morning was joking, where are the dinosaurs? They're there, somewhere there. Okay, they went into the ark. 
They came out and post-flood they couldn't, because of the climate conditions, changes, they didn't survive. So you have these three tears on the inside of the ark. And then God talks about having a door which we saw earlier. There was a door through which they would all enter in verse 17. God told Noah by what means he was planning to destroy the world and the reason for the ark. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has a breath of, to destroy every creature that has a breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. So God is predicting this is what I am going to do Noah. Look at verse 18. First time the word covenant is explicitly used. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Eight people in total. And God told Noah what else he had to do in terms of preserving other life creatures. Verses 19 through 21. Verse 19, you are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Why? So that they can renew the post-flood world. Verses 20 and 21, he says, Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you. God will sovereignly work to have them come so that they could be kept alive. Verse 21, you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them for that prolonged period that they would be inside the ark, which we'll see shortly. And the chapter ends with a positive note. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Folks, true faith proves itself out through obedience to God's commands. Think about Noah's faith. Remarkable faith. Given that until now, there's been no flood. And according to Genesis 2, 5 and 6, something up until this point, there was no rain. No rain, no flood. And he's to prepare this large box for over a hundred years. Think about that. Sometimes we have to persevere for some little thing for a couple of months, a couple of years. And we have good Christian support. We moan and groan. That's a hundred plus years. Facing ridicule during that time. That's monumental faith. The next time you get discouraged, I'm all alone fighting this battle, look to Noah. Look to Noah. No wonder in chapter 7 verse 1, we find God once again commending Noah. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you. And if I can have the liberty to add, I have found you alone, righteous in this generation. What a commendation. That's my man. God's looking down from heaven. It's the greatest commendation. Not seeking praise from people, but from God. That's my man. That's my woman. That's my son, my daughter. And in verses 2 through 4, we read about God commanding Noah to bring in more animals. This time it's mainly for the purpose of sacrifices as they would enter the renewed post-flood world and he also revealed how he would in seven days verse 4 send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and wipe from the face of the earth every living creature and verse 5 tells us once again Noah did all that the Lord commanded him and then in verses 6 through 10 we see how in seven days God shut the ark Noah verse 6 tells us he was 600 years old when he entered the ark with his family, all the animals as the flood water came, came on the earth. Look at verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals of birds and of all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah as God promised and after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. And then for 40 days, verses 11 through 12, tells us how the flood waters covered the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day, see how precise we are given the details. 17th day of the second month, 
On that day, the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heaven were opened, both sides, up and down. And rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. One can only imagine the tremendous effects this would have had on the surface of the earth as well as on the climate. That's why you find things, people look at, you know, this, the earth is so many billions of years old. No, when this flood came, it completely changed the complexity of the universe. Gigantic tidal waves followed these eruptions. Cataclysmic. That's what this flood did. And then verses 17 through 24 tells us for 110 days the flood covered the earth. If you jump down to verse 17 through 24, I'm going to read selectively. Verse 17, for 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark High above the earth, verse 19. Folks, verse 19 is one of the most definitive verses in all of the scriptures that this is a worldwide flood. People say it's a local flood. If it was a local flood, people would just move to another place. Think about it. Verse 19. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains and the entire heavens were covered. In fact, the text would say the highest mountain was covered over two feet with water. Every living thing on the face of the earth, verse 23, was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. And then verse 24 tells us the waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. Think about this as the rain started coming. People didn't believe Noah. That's why they didn't enter the ark. So they said, oh, this is something strange phenomenon. Maybe they even danced in the rain. And then, as the waters are rising, they go to the second level of their house. If they had a second level or a third level. That didn't work. Let's go to the closest tree. Let's go to the mountain. They try to come back to the ark. Bang on the door. Too late. They try to climb the ark through another way. No. They scream, let us in, let us in. Let us in. They disregarded 100 plus years of calling, come, come. Those floodwaters, they rose, they rose, and they rose until everything that had breath perished. But notice the encouraging note about God's mercies toward those inside the ark. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. For about 74 days, the next section Chronicles the flood chronology this way. But God, look at verse 1 of chapter 8. But God, what a beautiful statement. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock. God will never forget his children. Including the rest of his creation. God cares for animals. God cares for animals. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and all the livestock that were with him in the ark and sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. It started fading away. Verse 2, Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heaven had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And Mount Ararat, many believe, is, is in this border of Turkey and Armenia. That's kind of the place that people think it is. Uh, if it, it's, it's in Turkey, but it's the border of Armenia. Uh, we don't have the ark now, but that's where uh, historians believe that uh, the ark rested. And we continue to read about the water levels going down. Look at verse 5. Forty days later, the mountain tops are seen as the water is coming down. The waters continue to recede until the tenth month. And on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. And then in verses 6 through 12, you see in a cycle of 28 days, Noah sending out birds out to sea. Is it safe to come out? Verse 6, after 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven and kept flying back and forth. Verse 8, he sent out a dove, but the dove... Verse 9, could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought back to himself in the ark. Why did the raven not return? Because 
Raven are unclean animals. They will even sit on dead bodies. Doves won't. So the dove come, comes back. He waits, verse 10, seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. Verse 11, when the dove returned to him in the evening, there, was, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf, meaning there was life. God was renewing as he promised. Verse 12, he waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. So Noah knows time is approaching close to coming out of the ark. Yet he doesn't go out. He's waiting for God to give him direction. Every step of the way, Noah listens to God. Doesn't take matters into his own hands. So far, it's been about a year he's been inside the ark. Look at verse 13. 22 days, verse 13 describes. 22 days, what is going on at this, by this time? If you pick it up from verse 11 of chapter 7, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heaven were opened. Now you read in verse 13 of chapter 8, by the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water dried up from the earth. So this is 360 days, Jewish calendar, 30 days per month. Noah still hasn't come out, but it's been a year inside the ark. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. Time getting real close to come out. Verses 13 through 19, Noah now opens this door that we read in verse 13. Second part of verse 13, Noah then removed the covering from the ark, this is the top covering, and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. Verse 14, by the 27th day of the second month, 10 more days, the earth was completely dry. Remember, there were seven days he was shut in. So 360 days plus 10 days plus six days, seventh day rain came, that's 376 days inside the ark. God protected him and those inside the ark. Once the earth was dry, notice what God told Noah, verses 15 through 17. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons and their wives, bring out every, bring out every living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. And what does Noah do? As always has been reading so far, in obedience. Verse 18, Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. God would now start renewing the whole universe. But just imagine how it would have been for Noah. He's seeing death at this massive scale. He's coming out, stunned. God, you are a God who is holy. You are a God we cannot take lightly. You are a God who must be obeyed. All the land animals come out with them. Sea creatures didn't perish. It was the land animals. So everything comes out. In verse, and from verse 20 of chapter 8 and all the way to verse 17 of chapter 9, we're going to see in the new start, there's four key events. Four key events. Event number one, verses 20 through 22. Noah, the, notice what he does. First thing Noah comes out, what he does is he offers sacrifices and see how God responds. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Burnt offerings, as we will look at more closely when we get to the book of Leviticus, Lord willing, were used on various occasions for atonement for sin, when people needed God's help, when people were thanking God, and also symbolic of complete dedication, just as the burnt offering was given up completely for God, except, except the skin would be given for the priests. It was a sim symbolic of total dedication. Probably all things are going through Noah's mind. Lord, you judged us. Our sins deserve that. And thank you for the deliverance. I want to dedicate myself. He's coming out. First thing in his mind is God. God. He realizes the effects of sin, but also more importantly, 
He sees God as a holy God who cannot be trifled with. Notice what God did in response. Beautiful, beautiful statement, verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have, as I have done. Meaning, never again by flood, but Bible describes later, God will destroy this world by fire. The sad reality is this. Even after all this, after this flood judgment, it did not change the basic nature of the human heart, did it? Every inclination of the human heart would still be evil from childhood. God goes on to promise, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Folks, the change of seasons every year is proof positive. Once again, that God keeps his promises. That's event number one. And the second event here is in verses nine, 1 through 4 of chapter 9, where God now blesses Noah, his sons, and gives them all kinds of food to eat. Verses 1 through 3, God blesses Noah, his three sons, and also, once again, he commands them, be fruitful, increase in the earth, multiply. And now he gives them not just plants, but also animals as food to eat. With one prohibition, verse 4, they could not eat meat that still has its lifeblood in it. That's one command repeated, even in the New Testament. Cannot eat meat with lifeblood in it. Even if it's rare meat, make sure it's well done. Event number three, verses five through seven. God is now stressing on the sanctity of life. Sanctity of life. The reason why Christians are to be unashamedly pro-life is because God values life. Look at verse five. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. This is why, verse 6, whoever sheds blood by humans shall have their blood be shed for in the image of God as God made mankind. I said when we looked at Genesis 1 and 2, because everyone intrinsically carries the image of God, that's why life is to be valued. Not just adults. Even killing babies, even though the term used in society is abortion, it is murder. In God's sight, it is murder. Because a baby, like an adult, still carries the image of God. Yes, there is forgiveness for those who have aborted. There is forgiveness in Christ. The shed blood of Christ does grant forgiveness. So we can speak forgiveness and assure people, who may have gone through that, that God forgives if they repent. But we need to understand, God values life. Intrinsically, everyone carries the image of God that, that shows how we should treat them, with our words and with our actions as well. And for the third time, God commands them to be fruitful and multiply, verse 7. And then, event number 4, verses 8 through 17, God is establishing now a covenant it gives details on the covenant, an agreement that he makes. It's one-sided. God is making this. Noah has no part in it. All Noah has to do is accept it. God makes a covenant. Noah, his sons, and their descendants. Verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. In extension, he's made this even with us. I've set my rainbow and the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth so God said to Noah this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on the earth. I want you to notice something about the rainbow, or in some translations it is the bow. Notice the rainbow is never a flat line. It's always what? 
upward bent. Now imagine if you stick an arrow to that sign there. Where is the arrow pointing to? Heaven. You know what God is saying? If I were to break my oath, may an arrow pierce me. That's what God is saying by putting that rainbow. If I am not a covenant-keeping God, if I am found to be a liar of my promises, may an arrow pierce my own soul. That's how serious God is when it comes to keeping His promises, both to save and to judge. Isn't that amazing? God didn't have to do that. Out of His own gracious heart, He is giving that sign, not just to Noah, even to the living creatures. And to show once again how the flood did not really change human hearts, we see a vivid, sad example in verses 20 through 22. Noah gets so drunk with wine. It, it, it just, you know, just up to now we're seeing Noah did all that he did. Faithful man, stood against everything. And now you feel like, you know, this pin pricking into that balloon and the balloon just went down. But just to show, even the best of them still are sinners. Noah gets so drunk that he does not even realize he's naked. First illustration in the Bible about the dangers of drunkenness. It, it is interesting. You see this theme of nakedness from Genesis 2 to 3 again. Right? He doesn't recognize. So drunk. And instead of covering his father's shameful state, verse 22 says, Ham the father of Canaan. That's interesting. Moses is setting us up for something by describing Ham now as the father of Canaan. He sees his father naked and told his true brothers outside. I don't, I'm not of the opinion that something perverse happened here in terms of Ham having sexual relations with his father. Some think that I don't subscribe to that at all. The sin was not in honoring his father. He should have covered his father. He failed to do that and comes and maybe makes mockery of it. I don't want to read too much into it. Uh, but whatever is the case, we see the other sons of Noah, they're doing the right thing. Honor your parents had its roots here. Look at verse 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. They walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they, they would not see their father naked. Don't uncover when your father's bed was later on, we read in Genesis, having relations with your stepmother. When Noah woke up, he realizes what happens. Notice what he said in the beginning of verse 25. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Why curse Canaan and not Ham who was the guilty one? Noah couldn't curse him because in Genesis 9.1, God already blessed Noah and his sons. Whom God blessed, Noah could not curse. So he curses Canaan. The question still remains, why Canaan, the fourth son of Ham, according to Genesis chapter 10 and verse 6? Some again conclude Canaan was the product of some kind of sexual immorality, while others think, no, Canaan was an unrighteous person to begin with, and the sin of Ham would go deeper and deeper through Canaan and find its fulfillment through Canaan and his descendants. I lean on that second view. Noah, foreseeing this, made this prophecy. Keep in mind, this section is prophetic. The next few verses, if you're following in your text here, it's prophetic. As Noah gives from verses 25 through 27, he's prophesying about his children and their future. Noah, foreseeing this, made this prophecy about Canaan. They were cursed for their own actions. Cursed for their own actions. And any Israelite who's reading this, because Moses is speaking that, remember, he's reading this, they would know, ah, they see the connection, they're going into the land of what? The Canaanites. God, God told them, you must destroy them. They will see why they're being told to destroy, because over the years, they've been seeped in sin without repenting. This would also help them to understand as God brought them through, they were descendants of Shem. As you will see in verse 26, Noah continues with his prophecy, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. Not Shem, but the blessing is for the God of Shem. 
may Canaan be the slave of Shem. So they would know, listen, this God has brought us through this Shem. Because Abraham, as we will see next time, Lord willing, comes through the line of Shem. And these people in the wilderness were descendants of that. And they would have the confidence, when we go into the promised land, God will help us to conquer these wicked Canaanites. And why? We cannot have any association with them. We cannot intermarry with them. All those lessons would be sinking into the Israelites as they are hearing this. The word Shem means name. Name. But God is, by pronouncing a blessing upon the God of Shem, Shem would be blessed. The name of the God, blessed. As a result, Shem is blessed and all his descendants would be blessed, including the Messiah who would eventually come through the line of Shem. And verse 27, may God extend Japheth's territory, may Japheth live in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. And Moses concludes this section, verses 28 and 29, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, he lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. What a life! Faithful man who stood alone for God in the midst of a very dark world. Even as these Israelites, hearing this, as they are going towards the promised land, getting closer and closer, God was reminding them, you can live a faithful life, a separated life in the midst of a wicked and perverse people whose land you are entering into. And for us living now, what's, what's the lesson? What are the truths we take? Number one, the question we need to ask as we've been doing through this series is, where is Jesus in all this picture? Where is he at? It's, it's, it's not hard to see Jesus in Genesis 6 through 9 through the lens of the New Testament, is it? The ark points to Jesus and his saving work in so many ways. I'm listing six ways of the multiple ways I could list. I have to get you guys out of here soon. So, six ways. And that chart hopefully helps you to See that. In six ways, Noah's ark is a picture of the Lord Jesus. Number one, the ark bore God's flood judgment. The same way, Jesus bore our sin judgment. First Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Second way, those, as those inside the ark were safe, those inside Jesus, united with them by faith, will be saved from God's future judgment that's coming by fire. Jesus himself said in John 5.24, Very truly I tell you, whoever, irrespective of your background, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense, has, and will not be judged in the future, but has crossed over from death to life. So when God sends his future judgment, those in Christ will be safe from it. Third, the ark was God's gracious provision for Noah and his family in the same way. Jesus is God's gracious and greatest and the best provision for sinners who would believe in him. The very familiar John 3.16 For God loved the world in this way or so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, again the whoever, believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. This was God's gift. God gave. Gave. And the fourth comparison, there was only one ark, folks. Not multiple arks. And there was only one door to that ark. Not multiple doors. In the same way, there's only one Savior. Only one. And the only way to be united with this one Savior is through the narrow way the way of repentance and faith. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no exceptions. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter picks up on this and says in Acts 4, 12, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Fifth comparison, all outside the ark did perish. Every living creature perished. In the same way, all outside of Jesus will perish. 
Look at John 8.24. I told you Jesus tells these wicked, rebellious, stubborn, cold, murdering Pharisees. I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. And last but not the least, God invited Noah and his family to come to the ark. Jesus invites you. If you are here, far away from Jesus, this is Jesus' invitation to you to come to him to find forgiveness for sins and find rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. that beautiful invitation, come to me, all, again, without exceptions, whoever, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. I am gentle and humble in heart, he will say later on. So if you are here, not yet come to Christ. Please realize you are in great danger. You are in great danger. The same God who put a bow, that we call it as a rainbow in the heavens, as a promise to never destroy the world by water, has another bow. A bow of arrows of judgment, bow with arrows of judgment, to be unleashed in a matter of time towards all who fail to accept his son's loving invitation to come and have life in him. Psalm 7, verses 12 through 13 says this. I'm reading the New Living Translation here. If a person does not repent, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. It's another bow. He is holding in his hand with arrow of judgment. He will prepare his deadly weapons and shoot his flaming Arrows. There is a judgment by fire that is coming. Peter describes it this way in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Just as the earth at that time was destroyed by water, the fire will destroy everything. And the only way to escape this fiery judgment is to be found in Christ. So again I plead with you, turn from your sins. Fall at Jesus' feet. Plead for mercy and by faith believe he took your judgment on that cross and he rose again. And you can have life through Jesus. That is why folks, Jesus came into this world. This is the reason for Christmas. He came to save people from the coming judgment. Surrender your life to him. God, as he promised, will not judge those who are united to his son by faith on the day of judgment because Jesus took their judgment. Stories told in the days of pioneers. Whenever there was a prairie fire, they knew the horses could not outrun the fire. So what would they do? They would take a match, light up a small patch of grass, and then they would go stand in it. So when the fire comes, it would not touch that piece of land because fire already destroyed it. In the same way when God's judgment is coming you are in Christ, he will not judge you again because Jesus took that judgment. That's the way to escape by turning to Christ. If not that fire will consume you. Those people they thought they could escape. They couldn't. The sweeping fire of God's judgment is coming. You take your stand on that cross where the Son of God took that wrath. He tasted death so that we would not have to. This is what should move our hearts to come to Christ. He bore it all for sinners like you and me. He didn't consult with us, by the way. He did it because He loves us. He's merciful. He wants us to have life. Jesus says, I am the door. I am the gate. Enter through me. Have life. Have life. We take our stand on that cross. We will find life for time and eternity. And for those, second thing, for those who by God's grace are united to Jesus, there's much to learn from Noah 
as we live out our remaining days on earth. Hebrews 11 verse 7 describes Noah and his obedience in this manner. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that's in keeping with faith. In other words, holy fear, notice, that's what marked Noah's life. And that fear led him to obey God in building the ark. One man, that too for a prolonged period, kept preaching the gospel. Peter calls him as a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5, a preacher of righteousness. Imagine what mocking he would have faced. To the end, folks, he did not see one single convert. Talk about having all the reasons to give up. Some of us give up too easily, we get discouraged. Again, look back at the life of Noah. 100 plus years, kept on sharing the gospel. Kept on sharing the gospel. Extended family, neighbors, friends. None turned. But yet, he didn't give up, did he? He didn't give up. Yet at that whole time, he kept living a holy life, in holy fear. He didn't mix himself with the world. He stayed pure. He didn't corrupt himself as the corrupt generation around him. He kept turning his back on the world with all its tempting appeals. What happened in the end? God kept his promise, brought him into a new world. He turned his back on that world. He ended up gaining the whole world. Other people didn't want to give up the world. They lost everything. He heard many voices from the world. But he trained his heart and his ears to listen to that one voice, the voice of God. Same thing that you and I ought to do. There's one voice, the voice of Jesus. And this is the voice of Jesus telling us in Mark 8, verses 34 through 38. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. And Luke adds daily in Luke 9:23, And follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. You want to hold on to this world, the things of this world, you will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world? What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Folks, let's take Jesus' words seriously and not give in to the world and its ways, but faithfully keep proclaiming the gospel and living out its truth. It's only a matter of time before Jesus returns and brings us safe into the kingdom he will establish. For those of us here who are prone to listening to the voices of the world. Let me give you a true story about Natalie Grant, this famous singer as to the dangers of hearing other voices instead of the voice of Jesus. For a long period of time, Natalie was shaped by an outside and an inside voice that threatened to have the last word in her life. She first heard it when she was in a line in the grocery store with her college boyfriend. As they were in the checkout line, as you all know, there's these dirty magazines that's on the side. So he turned to her and he said, you always ask me if you look pretty. He pointed to a picture of one of the women on the cover of the magazine. And he said, this is what I think is beautiful. She looked at that thin model on the cover, perfect skin, flawless hair. Now, Natalie knew, I would never be able to look like that, but I can try, she thought. So when they finished shopping, they went and had lunch at a restaurant. Immediately after they ate, she headed to the bathroom. The first of many times which she would do, stuck her finger into her throat, bent over the toilet, expelled all the food that she ate. It felt good for her. She felt free of the food. She felt in control of her life and hopeful that by this she would gain acceptance and approval she craved from that one person at that point in time whose word had so much power in her life. Eventually, she dropped down to 96 pounds. Her collarbone stuck out and she thought she was beautiful. 
Other people thought she was beautiful as well and told her so. But then her teeth started turning yellow from the constant vomiting. Her hair began to fall out and that boyfriend drifted away. What she initially thought had given her freedom and control had actually turned her into a slave. A boyfriend's unrealistic expectations and bulimia's false promises thankfully did not have the last word in her life. The day came when she heard that word that had the greatest power in all of the world. That word that is more powerful from the words of this beauty-crazed culture and from her own self-loathing, that inner voice, that word that had great power. According to her own words, this is what she said, I've never heard God speak audibly, but the Holy Spirit speaks to us on the inside and one day, huddled down with my head over the toilet, I heard him saying, my grace is enough. My grace is enough. As that scripture began to move from my head to my heart, I remember looking at that toilet and saying, I'm kneeling to the wrong God. I'm kneeling to this God of myself because this is what I do to make myself feel better and to feel accepted and to look a certain way. I am kneeling to a, a wrong God and this will destroy me. Freedom came when the voice of God spoke grace into her life so powerfully that it drowned all other lesser voices. God's grace now would become the defining word in her life instead of bulimia. Folks, when you read Genesis 6, we see that Noah had many voices around him seeking to define him. Come, join us in our way of life. It's easy, this life, filled with pleasure, don't take building the ark seriously. Don't be in the narrow path in the minority condemning us. Come, throw in your lot with us. And then there was that voice on the inside. His own weaknesses, his own fears of appearing like a fool if the flood didn't come after all his work. But then there was that other voice. The clear, the authoritative voice of God who had given him all the instructions and the promises who or what voice would have the ultimate say in Noah's life? We know from the Bible, thankfully, it was God's voice that prevailed in Noah's case. But we must keep posing this question to ourselves. Whose voice is prevailing right now in your life and in mine? The world's voice or your own voice or the voice of the one who has spoken once for all in his word both judgment for the disobedient and salvation for the obedient. An honest answer to that will determine where we will end up when Jesus returns in judgment. Are we bowing to the wrong God all the while, deceiving ourselves into thinking we are bowing to the God of the Bible? Or are we really bowing to the right God, the one who calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and come after him by forsaking all. May the Lord help us. Because we cannot do it on our own. May the Lord help us. To be certain. We are bowing to Jesus Christ only. The one who took our judgment on that cross. Rose again. And calls us to stay on that narrow path. Because that's the only path. That in the end. Will lead to life in the coming world. The world. Where Jesus will reign as king. In the world where righteousness and righteousness alone will dwell forever and ever. Not in that world that is called hell. Where there would be conscious, unmitigating, unending, relentless suffering. No hope, no faith needed because that is the end. No vacation. Is that where you want to end up? You want this to be a blessed Christmas, a Merry Christmas, turn to Christ. Stand in the ground where he took that judgment. Come, find life in the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I give life, the good shepherd. I give life to my sheep. It doesn't matter how much you have messed up. It doesn't matter how much you are messing up right now. 
by faith come to him. Lord Jesus, help me. That's all you need. Help me. He will, he will listen to that cry if you mean it with all your heart. Father, I pray that those who are far away from your son, you would enable them through your spirit to cry out that cry. And for those who've, whom you've enabled to cry that cry, help us, Lord, to live for Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, to live for you is the best life of all. Only one life we have, Lord. Help us to live for you. And not to be defined by our own voices or the voices of the world, but by your wonderful, authoritative, sweet, and loving voice that says, I will give you rest. We are complete in you. You've accepted us while we were sinners. Lord, help us, Lord, just to find our complete identity in you and in no other thing. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.